Um, just before we get started, I kind of feel compelled sometimes by uh, cultural events, current events, to say something uh, as um, a shepherd and one of your shepherds here. Uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 7 is a reminder of Matthew 24, 36. Both places say that nobody, even Jesus in his incarnation, knows the time and the dates that are reserved for the Father's plans. So no need to ever assume that um, maybe somebody has figured out some code or mystery. Uh, There is no such code. There is no such mystery. Uh, The secret thing belonged to the Lord. And the secret thing in question this last weekend was the timing of Christ's return. Um, I was warned this weekend to be careful of my own heart that I not desire so much that Christ not come back tomorrow that I somehow uh, find myself happy that he hasn't returned. We need to long for his return, even if somehow uh, that coincided with a false prophet's declaration. In this case, it hasn't. And uh, the false prophet is seen as false even to an unknowing world. Um, Unfortunately, this becomes a mockery of Christ and of his word. So don't avoid the current events and the opportunities they provide for you maximize them and uh, stand on the truth of God's word and expose those who falsely claim to be standing on God's word and that God will bless that opportunity as well I know so Matthew 24 36 Acts 1 and verse 7 are important verses in relationship to um, false prophet Harold Camping okay if that's unfamiliar territory to you that's that's all well and good Um, You'll probably be checking up on that later today. And uh, I know that there were many who faced the music yesterday, who had spent their life savings uh, believing this man. And um, unfortunately, he didn't have the courage to step out and to say that he was a false prophet and that he was wrong. Uh, He has done this before, and I'm interested to see what God will do uh, to establish his word and faithfulness in spite of people like Harold Camping who lead people astray. Really dovetails well with what we're doing on these mornings together for the next several weeks. We're studying our commitments as a church family, and ironically, we're studying our commitment to God's Word um, as it's written, as the centerpiece of our existence as a church family. Um, Commitment number one in our philosophy of ministry, commitments, uh, we have ten of those. Commitment number one is to God and His authoritative Word. And the statement goes like this. The Bible is God's revelation to us in completion, perfection, and absolute authority. Therefore, consistent expository teaching and application of what God has said in His Word is a must. The living Word is the primary means of our knowing and worshiping Him in truth. Um, So last week we talked about why the Word of God is central to life at Grace Church. Why is it that the Bible is so key? If God is at the, at, the, at the centerpiece, why is His Word so closely connected to Him? And we walk through our Old and New Testaments exposing from various texts the, the living nature of God's Word, the perfections and the power of God's Word. Uh, this morning I want to address a second question that relates to that first commitment. And this is uh, not much different, but how is the Bible to be central in our worship as a church family? How is the Bible the centerpiece of what we do as as a church family? And 
I know there are simple answers that probably seem obvious, but even the elementary ones are important for us to rehearse and to consider and to set before us as a church family. We've talked about this before, but if we are not in the practice, continual practice of being first generation, um, first generation believers within our church, in other words, if we are not freshly committed to the principles that guide and direct our church as a local assembly of Jesus Christ, then we will, over time, turn into merely following tradition. It will be something that has been, someone else articulated it, someone else set it up, and we just merely follow along blindly behind it, which, within a generation, will open the door for any number of errors. So my task, my goal, is just simply to remind you of what we stand for what we do, why we do it, so that we are freshly committed to life as a church family according to what the Word of God says. So the Word of God is living, it is active, and it is accurate, and therefore it's an appropriate question to ask, how is the Bible centered in the ministry of a local church? And in particular, we're concerned with our local church here at Grace Church of the Valley. Within nature, there are laws of uh, consequence. There are actions that are always followed by a reaction. And there are truth claims that have inherently tied to them ramifications. Um, There are claims that, that, that one makes that then have an implication that is directly connected to that claim. And unfortunately, in a postmodern culture like the one in which we live, the implications are sometimes disconnected from the claim so that people can claim to believe something without that belief having anything to do with their existence that day or the next day. The claim that the Bible is, in fact, God's Word, that He inspired this Word, that He breathed it out, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, and that therefore it is sufficient for everything we need, has implications connected to it. We cannot simply answer the question of why the Bible must be central within, without then moving to the implications of how that centrality is lived out. So if the Bible is from God and bears God's sovereign authority, it must be experientially the center of our existence if we're a church that's under God. You see the the law of consequence that's connected here. If this is true, that the Bible is God's Word, then there must be application in our life as a church family. This is what Paul intended to remind Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where he told him that the church, the local church in Ephesus, and every local church that make up the universal church, those were the pillar and the buttress, words that we probably don't often use, the foundation, the underpinnings of the truth. The church is is the pillar of the truth. The local assembly is to be identified as the place where the Bible reigns and God's sovereignty is recognized by the relationship of the people of God to the Word of God. So what are the implications upon this claim of how the Bible must be central within the local church? Well, we're going to divide this up into two sections for, I hope, for clarity. Number one, we'll talk about the application of the centrality of the Bible for pastors. And then secondly, we'll talk about the applications of centrality for all. So one, leaders, 
And then two, for all, pastors and members. And to do that, let's make our way to 2 Timothy. Paul's writing to his young protege, Timothy, at the church at Ephesus. And let's move to 2 Timothy, and we'll begin in chapter 2. How is it that the Bible is central at Grace Church? And let's begin with examining the application of centrality for pastors. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we find Paul encouraging Timothy to be a good soldier for Christ, to be a good athlete for Christ, to be a good farmer for Christ. Those are the pictures that Paul uses in the first verses of chapter 2. Powerful word pictures for the minister of the gospel, for the pastor, for the shepherds, for the elders of the church. And in verse number 14, Paul comes back to this theme of being a good worker, and he addresses Timothy again, and notice his words, remind the people of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Now notice verse 15, do your best, pastor, shepherd, elder, do your best to present yourself to God. As one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And then notice the description of this good, approved worker. Rightly handling the word of truth. The success before God of the leadership of the local church is connected to their faithfulness in the handling of His word. It's a familiar verse. In fact, if you grew up involved in Awanas, or your children are involved in Awana. This, this is where that comes from. A worker not needing to be ashamed. Um, approved and not ashamed. That's the anacronym for Awana, and this is a familiar verse. But the idea that's found here is key to answering the question of how the word is central for leaders within the local church. The verb that Paul uses for rightly handling the word of truth is um, it's one from workmanship and it means to cut straight in a line, to make a, a clean, straight cut. So when handling the Bible, opening the Bible, dividing the Bible, if you will, laying the table for the Scriptures to have its influence upon the people of God, the leaders of the church are to handle it faithfully and accurately present it to the people of God as the Word of God. So that's 2 Timothy chapter 2. The same concept is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Flip back a few pages and let's see this same concept of the direct correlation between the ministry of the Word and the success or the, the nature of the ministry of the leaders within the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 was thankful to be encouraged by um, Pastor John at... Seminary graduation uh, last week uh, from this text and reminded of its implications. Paul here is explaining to the Corinthian believers where his authority rests as a leader within the church. He says in verse 14, but thanks be to God, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. 
to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Now that question in verse number 16 at the very end of that verse seems like a rhetorical question. It seems as if the answer should be nobody. Who could ever claim to be the aroma of God? Not usually the way you define yourself as a Christian to your non-Christian friends. I am the aroma. I'm the incense of God. Be around me long enough and you smell what God is like. Who is sufficient for that kind of a task? But Paul's answer in verse 17 is that he is and that his counterparts are those who are fellowshipping with him in the ministry. His, con- his team members. Verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So the sufficiency of the leaders within the church is directly connected to the ministry of the word. Paul doesn't peddle the word of God. He doesn't sell the word of God. He doesn't do what he does for money, like so many, but rather with sincerity, under God's commission, and under God's watchful eye, he speaks for Christ with the word. Carry down into chapter 3 and verse number 4. He says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul says the sufficiency of our ministry, the authority of our ministry, is directly connected to the Word. As leaders within the church, it is rightful for us to understand that our approval before our King and our ministry as delegates for the King is directly connected to our handling of His Word. We are not here on our own authority. We do not have in and of ourselves our own sufficiency. We are not capable of our own wisdom. We don't have the good ideas. We cannot lead effectively apart from utter dependence upon an accurate handling of the Bible. So how is the Word of God central within the church? Well, it begins with under-shepherds who are faithful in making the Word central to their ministries. Now, Paul further explains this if we head back to 2 Timothy just a a few pages over from where we first read into 2 Timothy chapter 4. He doesn't leave us wondering what the primary application for pastors is regarding to the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses number 1 and 2, Paul outlines for Timothy the implications of his pastoral ministry with the Word as centered. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Paul says, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Proclaim the word. Herald the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, these words from Paul mark or define what has to be the standard for the local church. As it comes to applications of centrality, when you say, how is the Bible centered at Grace Church of the Valley? It must be because the shepherds who care for the flock under the chief shepherd at Grace Church of the Valley handle the Word of God accurately, find their sufficiency in the Word of God, and therefore proclaim the Word of God. 
Notice the authority for this proclamation in verse number 1. Paul stacks up the authority from which he is charging Timothy to this task. I charge you. Um, Paul, don't, don't wonder, Paul is definitely setting up a difference between Paul and Timothy. I charge you. I, Apostle Paul, one who has seen Christ, even an apostle out of time, I, the apostle, charge you, the pastor, the elder at Ephesus. But I don't just charge you on my own authority. I charge you in the presence of God and of the Messiah Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. Judgment is coming, and by His appearing in His kingdom, His authority. So the judgment of Christ and the authority of Christ are brought to bear as Paul makes this charge. The authority for Timothy's preaching, for his proclamation, for his heralding, is found in God through the influence of Christ's apostle Paul. The source for the preaching is pretty simple. Preach the Word. The Word being the whole of Scripture from cover to cover, the completed canon, is to be the text of preaching for Timothy and for the leaders in the local church today. So biblical preaching is expository preaching. And maybe that's a a million dollar word that doesn't mean much. What is expository preaching? Well, if you break that word back, just take off a few letters off the end, you come to a root word of expose. Expository preaching is simply the task of exposing what God has said and then bringing it to bear upon the hearers. So, Timothy is to contain his preaching ministry, his proclamation ministry, his heralding ministry to one source. He is to expose the Word of God. This is how the Bible is centered in the local church, primarily with application to its leaders. The idea of preaching is such a familiar word, but the concept is one that's foreign to our democratic society. In this period, under Nero in the Roman Empire, a spokesman might come into your community from the emperor. And he might be delivering for your accountability, an edict from the emperor. He would be heralding on the emperor's behalf. He never came to share his heart with you. He never came to come up with a few wise steps to help you have a better week. He came not in his own authority. You didn't listen to him because of his name. You didn't listen to him because of of, of his credential, you listen to him because he came for the emperor. And his message was the emperor's message. He was merely the spokesman who communicated it to you. That is the concept behind the word preach. It is herald the word. The shepherds of the church are contained to exposing the people of God to the message of God. To his communication. I remember when this broke on my heart, and uh, maybe because expository preaching is such a habit here, you would be led to think that this has been a part of my existence for my entire life. It has not been. In fact, I distinctly remember the very first time I heard expository preaching. I was 19 years old, it was in Seattle, Washington. 
I was nervously sitting beside my girlfriend of uh, several months. I was trying to act right in church, be mature at 19. It was a facade. There was no maturity going on on the inside. And the preaching began, and I had never heard someone expose the Bible. I had never heard the content of the message directly matched to the content of a text. I had never heard the context of the text brought to bear upon the text so that the text came to bear on me. And I remember after that hour-long preaching session wondering if I could ever be a part of teaching God's Word in that way. I went back to school the next semester. I had a class where I read the book Biblical Preaching by Haddon Robinson and I found this definition defining expository preaching. This is the, the period of my life that my eyes were being opened to a whole new vista of the ministry of the Word. Haddon Robinson says in his book, Biblical Preaching, expository preaching is the communication of a biblical concept derived from and transmitted through a historical, grammatical, literal study of a passage in its context, which the Holy Spirit first applies to the personality and experience of the preacher, then through the preacher applies to the hearers. Now that, maybe to you, sounds like jargon, seminary jargon. Those are, those are powerful, descriptive sentences. Expository preaching is the communication of a biblical concept, preach the word, derived from and transmitted through historical, grammatical, literal Study of a passage, preach the word in its context, preach the word, which the Holy Spirit first applies to the personality and experience of the preacher, preach the word, and then through the preacher applies to the hearers, preach the word. Everything that happens from the pulpit of the church in any setting, from the shepherds communicating to the sheep, ought to be the word, accurately handled, appropriately applied. And brought to bear upon the life of the flock. Having first come to bear upon the life of the shepherds who care for the flock under the leadership of the chief shepherd. John MacArthur is so helpful. I mean, obviously he is the application to me. Um, My seminary training was in direct result of reading that paragraph from Haddon Robinson. And sitting in that sermon with my wife now, my girlfriend then. He says the only logical response to inerrant Scripture then is to preach it expositionally. Brothers and sisters, if the Bible is God's book, if it is His communication, and it is without error, then what other voice would we want to hear than this voice from God? So the centrality of the Bible, when we say we're committed to the authoritative Word of God, as the the very heartbeat that pulses through our church family. That has real implications. And the application to us as shepherds is that our authority is found in the Word. Our source is the Word for our communication with you in shepherding and in preaching. The heralding must be marked first at the pulpit by the Word. It must flow then into the flock as the ministry of the Word continues to spread from Christian to Christian to Christian. Now the method that Paul explains to Timothy is found in the second part of verse number 2. Not only is the authority, God Himself, and the source, the the very Scriptures that we're reading, but the method is outlined in verse number 2. Be ready in season and out of season. 
That means be urgent to communicate from God what He has said accurately, whether it's popular or unpopular. Whether people are asking for it or whether they are asking for it to stop. (laughs) Whether they like it or they don't. This is what the church must do if it is to be the, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The leaders must be ready and urgent to communicate from God through His Word, whether it's in season or out of season. Some of you are really committed to hunting. In fact, you're so committed to hunting that you stay ready to hunt even when you're not in season to hunt. In fact, it would be illegal for you to hunt, but you continue to practice the hunting craft. I have a dear friend who you are going to get to know and love, I trust, in just a few months. His name is Jeremy McMorris. He loves to hunt. He loves to wear camo. He loves to shoot a bow in his backyard and hone his skills for hunting, even though he's months away from being legally allowed to hunt. The concept of being ready in season and out of season is this very same picture. Constantly being prepared, being ready to communicate for God as a leader within Christ's church. This is the staple of biblical leaders within a local assembly where the Bible is central. Now, the method continues. He continues to describe the method with three words piled up on top of each other. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Those are easy to read and just go, okay, that's good, and have no idea what those, what those mean. Or maybe one out of three. Maybe we know what rebuke means. Maybe we know what exhort means. These three, these three descriptive activities are key to understanding what preaching should be accomplishing, what the ministry of leaders within the church who are handling the Bible should be doing. Maybe you have another translation that uses these words, argument or argue, reprove, and appeal. The idea here is to bring the Word of God to bear upon the mind, the thinking, the the heart, the belief system, and even the will of each and every individual who's under the sound of the Word. So Timothy is to address the mind, the heart, and the affections. Preaching the Word must convince the hearers with truth, correct the hearer's error with truth, and challenge the hearer with truth. This is the centrality of the word for pastors. And finally, there's an attitude that must accompany this centrality of the word in pastoral leadership. The attitude is found in the last phrase of verse number two, with complete patience and teaching. Two ideas that mark biblical pastoral leadership. Patience with the people of God as they receive the Word of God and as they're affected by the Word of God and transformed by the Word of God and as the the Word convicts and, and rebukes and shapes and molds them to look like Christ, patience in that process is a key component of preaching. Preaching ought to be definitive. Instruction in the church from shepherds ought to be definitive. This is truth. You must live this way because of this truth. And then the attitude must be patience for that process to take root. And teaching. And you think, well, isn't that what preaching does? Well, yes, but it's important for Timothy to realize that this is an ongoing 
indoctrination of the people of God. In season and out of season, patient in attitude, teaching God's people about God from God in His Word. So the attitude is one of patient instruction in the bold, unapologetic proclamation of the Bible. This is what Paul did at Ephesus. So he's writing to Timothy and he's telling him to do something that he already did. Maybe you remember this in Acts chapter 20. He loves the elders at Ephesus. He calls them to meet him at Miletus. He has the elders gather with him and he says to them, you remember that I, when I was with you, I did not cease to proclaim to you the truth and to go from house to house. Paul was patient, he was instructional, and he was preaching the word. This is the centering of God's word within leadership in the local church. So, expository preaching is the natural application of what we believe about the Bible. The why the Bible is central fuels the how the Bible is central. It's not a style. Expository preaching is not a style. It's a conviction about how we handle the Bible. And how what is preached is is decided upon. Styles vary. Communication styles vary. Ways to package information vary. And and are fruitful in their variance. Variety is good in style. But the conviction must be that the message of the text is the message of the sermon. Style of sermons and preaching can vary from topical to thematic. We're doing topical study now with expository preaching. But the expository nature of preaching must be an immovable conviction if we're to be a biblical church or word-centered church. Derek Thomas writes a book, or writes a chapter in a book, rather, called Feed My Sheep. It's a compilation of articles on preaching from the best expositors in our day. Derek Thomas is one of them. And he says to watch out for counterfeit expository preaching and he gives four illustrations and I thought I'd share them with you just so that you're alert and able to hold accountable the leaders of our church family as we pursue being centered upon the Bible in our instruction and proclamation. Number one, there's the I want to tell you what's on my heart sermon. This means I have something that I think I need to communicate with you and I'll find the Bible verse that will back me up. I will bring my message and I will use the Bible to support me rather than allow the Bible to support its own message and to publicly proclaim what it says in its context. Number two, there's the I've been reading systematic theology sermon, which is a, a, an information download of content rather than an exposition of the text of Scripture. Number three, there's the, I have a seminary education and I'm determined to let you know that sermon. Which includes details that are unnecessary for understanding and applying the paragraph under study. Using terminology that elevates one individual who happens to be the speaker above those to whom he's speaking. And fourth illustration that he gives, negative illustration The I'm in such a hurry to apply this that you must forgive me for not showing you where it came from sermon. Which simply opens the Bible, says this is how you need to obey without explaining to you from the text how that conclusion has come to. 
So I trust that expository ministry, exposing the truth of God's Word, will be the application. Ongoingly, patiently, with instruction, will be the application of leadership within our local assembly. Now, secondly, there is application for all. How is the Bible central for all of us? Whether leaders or not leaders, whether positioned or not positioned, how is it that we set ourselves to have the Bible as central to our lives as a church family. So move the short distance from this piece of wood to seats, and let's consider as a group how we must have the Bible centralized in our lives. Turn a few pages to the letter of James. Right after Hebrews, you'll find James in chapter 1, verse 19. James 1, 19 is probably one of the most helpful passages about our relationship to the Word as a church family. Leaders must proclaim it, and if we're to simplify James, members must receive it. Verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Those statements, those Commands are in direct relationship to the Word, which is talked about in verse 18 that gave birth to us spiritually. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror." He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So learning and living with the Bible as the center of our church family comes back to bear upon us all here with the command to receive with meekness the implanted word. This is at the heartbeat of expository listening, the featured resource that we have available at the Hub. It's these verses that call us to be ready for the Word. Do you notice the readiness that's, that's outlined for us when we come to receive God's Word? I wonder how much we prepare on a weekly basis for the Sunday meeting where we will be receiving the Word of God. Because there's a very real and outlined preparation model that's given to us in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. First, we're to set aside sinful activity, propensity to pride, being slow to hear, being quick to talk, and being quick to be angry at what's being said to us, which does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, we're called in verse 21 to shed like clothing, to take off filthiness and rampant wickedness, the residue of sin that we read about in Romans 7 this morning, to shed that and to come humbly welcoming the Word. Receive is the idea of opening arms and welcoming the ministry of the Word. So be ready, be receptive, and then we see our relationship. If the Bible is center, we must be responsive to the Word. 
So we must be ready for the word. We must be receptive of the word. And we must be responsive to the word. So brothers and sisters, it's not enough. There is no badge of honor in being a part of a a, a service where expository preaching happens. There is not inherent growth in merely sitting while somebody talks from the Bible, proclaims the message of the King. We must be ready to receive. We must then receive. And then finally, we must respond. The growth comes in our response to what the Word says. So how must the Bible be central in our worship? Well, first of all, for leaders, it must be the sufficiency of our ministry. It must be the proclamation of our ministry. But for all, it must be the reception that marks the centering of the Bible. Are we ready to hear it? Do we hear it? And then do we respond to what we've heard from God? God talks to you through His Bible. And if you're not ready to hear Him, you will miss it. And if you're not receptive, you'll reject it. And if you're not responsive, you will ignore it. Those are the only alternatives. It is a delight for us as a pastoral team. It's a delight for us to hear you responding to the Word. To hear you talk about the reception of the Word and to watch. It is a, it's a joy from my heart to watch you receive the Word. To welcome the ministry of the Word because you have been ready. For many, this is just simply a reminder and a call to excel still more in the centrality of the Word in your life as a member of Grace Church. There's another way in which the Word is central. If we go to Colossians chapter 1, I want to show you a connection point here with the Word of God. Colossians chapter 3, rather. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 speaks about the Word of Christ in direct relationship to us being together on Sunday. First day of the week meeting, worship meeting of the local church. Verse number 16 calls us to having the Word centralized in very real applications. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How is the Word of God central for all of God's people? Because as it fills their minds, as it dwells richly in their hearts, they teach and counsel one another in all wisdom. So if you thought to yourself, oh good, the leaders are responsible for all of the teaching ministry within the church, you've misunderstood what the centrality of the Bible means to a local church. It means all of us are engaged in teaching and admonishing because the Word of God is dwelling richly in us. So when we're with one another, we communicate truth with one another. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Even the ministry of music is one for us to sing the Word to each other. We are singing truth grounded and founded in the Bible. So as a church family, the centrality of God's Word means we're ready to receive the Word, we receive it, and we respond to it. And not only that, but that we actually appropriate the Word of God in teaching and counseling each other and in singing truth with one another so maybe you've thought of singing time as the prep for the real 
the real part of the service of worship where we give our attention to the Word. Thankfully, we have a commitment to singing the truth of the Word as well, which gives us the opportunity to have the Word of Christ dwelling in us, dwelling in us richly through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, a variety of kinds of music. Maybe you haven't considered this, but word-centeredness is dependent upon your activity within the local church. So Grace Church claims to be a word-centered church. And most, mostly we would reference that to leadership, and, and rightly so that that's the starting place. But if we are to be known by God, which is our purpose statement, to be known by God as a word-centered church, it's not merely because our shepherds handle the word carefully and accurately. It's because we, as a family, as brothers and sisters, have the word of God actively dwelling in us, in our teaching and communication with one another, and in our singing Worshiping with each other in the truth. All of this with gratitude in our hearts toward God. This is the centrality in, in the local church. This is the answer to the how question. And it's a brief answer. It doesn't exhaust the topic. But it certainly sets the table for us to understand that the Bible being center means something. There is application for that. It will not suffice for us to claim to be centered upon the Bible without allowing the implications of that claim to be found in the Bible. And the implications are that leaders handle the Word, proclaim the Word, are approved because of the Word, are sufficient because of the Word, and that all of the church family, the entire flock under Christ, ministers with the Word to one another. You have been called to teach one another from the word of Christ and to admonish, that is to counsel, to care for one another. Let me challenge you with some application of the application. When someone says to you something from their life, they communicate something to you that immediately the Spirit of God alarms you is not biblical thinking. Your natural, my natural response in those settings is to get out while the getting out's good. Hope that works out for you. Talk to you next week. Um, yeah, well, hang in there. Something comes out of our mouth that is equally empty from God's Word. Let me encourage you to have courage that you've been called to teach and admonish one another with the Word when there is an unbiblical thought or statement made with patience, humility, with grace, remind that individual that the Word of God says something different. Remind them of truth because in doing that, you are obeying the command given to you in Colossians chapter 3 and you are ministering grace, Ephesians 4.29, for the building up of the body. Church growth, the spiritual kind, happens because the body itself communicates truth to one another. This can be in any number of settings, but it must be, it must be the application of the centrality of the Bible 
in our church family. So we must be expository learners and we must be expository livers. We must live out not just communicating, not just receiving, but then applying and living as God's people within Christ's church. So what do we do with this information? Well, for one, this sets accountability high. Hold your leaders to the biblical standard for biblical centrality. Pray for us to be faithful to the biblical standard for biblical centrality. We are sinners. We are failing sinners. We are human beings. We are not the shepherds. We are under shepherds, under the shepherds. So pray for grace and strength and commitment to the biblical standard for your leaders. Number two, not only hold your leaders to the biblical standard, but hold yourself to the biblical standard for biblical centrality. Be ready, be receptive, be responsive. Actively participate in the ministry of the Word of God, both on Sundays and on church Monday through Saturday. When we've not gathered, but when we are engaged with one another in various settings. Hold your leaders accountable. Hold yourself accountable. All the while looking to grace from God to accomplish these tasks. Let's not be found to be arrogant about being word-centered. That is, that's an oxymoron. How could we be proud of being word-centered? Well, we can be because we twist everything to our own destruction. But the Word of God humbles us. It brings us back to reality of what is true about us. And in being word-centered as a church, we ought to be marked by the most humble position because the Word of Christ is dwelling richly in us. Father, thank you for these applications that you've given to us. These are not of our own imagination. This is not a share time of what do you think we ought to do to be word-centered. This is coming to you, the sovereign King of heaven. Not to one another, not to mere human sources, but to your living and abiding word. And seeking for wisdom in how to apply our commitment, our necessary commitment to your word. We're committed to your word because we know you. We know you because your son has made way for us to be yours. So take these implications and drive them deeply upon our hearts because of the cross work of Christ. We have been changed. We are new people. We have new affections. And one of those affections is a love to hear from you in your word. So may each of us be filled richly and ministering your word. And may our leadership be faithful to patiently and doctrinally, instructionally proclaim your message, calling for changes, encouraging changes, and pointing out the fruits of your grace as we see your word at work in your church. We are committed to these things because we believe they are clearly delivered to us from your word. So we ask for strength, enduring strength, to remain faithful to these commitments that you have given us as your church. And we pray this in total dependence upon you, the one who alone has the power to sustain us 
and to bring us to completion when we see your Son. So we pray in his powerful name for your glory and independence upon your spirit. Amen.